Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. It's the weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. And I'll be honest, this episode has been a long time coming. As I'm sure you know, former President Donald Trump has run into a bit of legal trouble since he left office. Back in April, he was indicted for the first time. And honestly, I was ready to throw what we had already done that week to the side and do a totally new episode. And I was ready to do that two more times. In June... And at the beginning of August, too. Thankfully, the rest of the Weeds team was able to get me to sit tight. And patience truly is a virtue, because now, three more indictments later, the legal challenges facing the former president are coming into view. And the latest indictment out of Fulton County, Georgia, is unique. It's a RICO charge, something that's most commonly associated with prosecuting organized crime, a.k.a. the mob. But before we get into RICO, here's a quick refresher for anyone not up to speed on all 91 charges facing Donald Trump. I'm Andrew Prokop. I'm senior politics correspondent at Vox, and I cover uh, a lot of the investigations that have been going on. Trump has been indicted in four different jurisdictions. The first was in New York. Earlier this afternoon, Donald Trump was arraigned on a New York Supreme Court indictment on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Then he was indicted in Florida related to charges of mishandling classified documents. This indictment was voted by a grand jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. And I invite everyone to read it in full to understand the scope and the gravity of the crimes charged. Then he was indicted in Washington, D.C. about essentially his plot to stay in power and overturn the 2020 election result. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. And finally, he was indicted in Georgia also about his efforts to overturn the 2020 election result in Georgia specifically. Every individual charged in the indictment is charged with one count of violating Georgia's Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Can you walk us through each of these cases? Like, what do they each mean? When did they happen? Like, what's going on here? So the first indictment that came down was brought by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. And so this was about the hush money payments that were made to Stormy Daniels, who had alleged a sexual encounter with Trump. Uh, Trump's longtime lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, had... uh, paid her just before the 2016 election so she would keep quiet, and Trump reimbursed Cohen for those payments. So he's facing 34 counts of falsifying business records. 
So next was the second indictment overall, and the first one brought by special counsel Jack Smith, who is leading the federal investigations into Trump. It was filed in Florida, and it relates to a whole set of classified documents that Trump took with him when leaving office and kept with him at Mar-a-Lago, his Florida estate. Eventually, the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago and found a good deal more documents that were still there. This indictment came down on June 8th, but then on July 27th, there were a set of other charges added to this related to an alleged attempt by Trump to uh, cover up what the security camera footage at Mar-a-Lago actually showed about how he was handling these documents. What about the third indictment? So then Jack Smith went ahead with his other indictment filed in August 1st in the District of Columbia, and this was the big one about Trump's effort to steal the election. It is a pretty lean, clean indictment charging Trump with just four counts that are related to conspiracy or obstruction, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an official proceeding, and conspiracy to disenfranchise voters. So he's essentially trying four different ways to charge Trump's actions criminally. And this will all be litigated and contested in the courts as Trump tries to argue that, no, he was just exercising his political speech rights. And what about this fourth indictment out of Georgia? So then Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis followed up with her own election-related indictment where Jack Smith's was pretty lean and stripped down. This is big and sprawling. Trump himself is charged with 13 counts, but he is charged with being a part of an overall racketeering conspiracy under the Georgia RICO law, which is essentially a law modeled after a federal law that's similar that allows prosecutors to basically say, you are part of a corrupt enterprise that is trying to do a corrupt thing, and we are going to basically charge you for that. So this is where Trump was indicted, but also allegedly part of the conspiracy are 18 other defendants, as well as more than 30 unindicted co-conspirators. Fonnie Willis is basically arguing that this was a pretty big criminal conspiracy to deprive Georgia voters of the rightful result in their state, which was Joe Biden's victory. Andrew Prokop, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So that's the overview of Trump's legal troubles. Now that we have the 10,000-foot view, it's time to zoom in on the most recent indictment. If you read through this indictment, you'll see that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has crafted a narrative alleging a corrupt enterprise. And she charged former President Donald Trump and over a dozen co-conspirators under the state's RICO law. RICO stands for Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations. That's David Skolansky. He's a professor at Stanford Law School and an expert on criminal law and criminal procedure. And RICO as we know it goes back about 50 years. In 1970, Congress enacted and the president signed into law the federal RICO statute. And that is the model for RICO statutes in most states now, including Georgia. All of these statutes at both the federal and the state level operate as kind of erector sets for prosecutors. 
They let prosecutors take particular crimes that they have the authority already to charge and make a new crime out of them. The crime of participating in an enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity. An enterprise basically is any group of people who are organized either in a formal or informal way. It could be a criminal gang, it could be a university, it could be a union or a public school system, or it could be a group of people who are working to overturn the results of a presidential election in a particular state. Each RICO statute specifies particular crimes that can count as so-called predicate acts. The list of crimes that can qualify in Georgia is significantly longer than the list that can qualify under the federal statute. A pattern of racketeering activity is two or more of these specific crimes that are related in some way. But the basic idea is that if you commit certain crimes in Georgia, and you do that as part of a pattern that involves some sort of enterprise, either a formal organization or a loose collection of people, that's an additional crime, the crime of RICO, and it works the same way at the federal level. That's so interesting because this sounds a lot like conspiracy. Uh, What's the difference between RICO and conspiracy charges? A conspiracy charge requires that everybody in the conspiracy be part of the same agreement, whereas a RICO charge just requires that everybody who's charged was participating in the same pattern of racketeering activity through the same enterprise. So a RICO charge can be much broader. Not everybody has to have been part of the same agreement as long as they're part of the same pattern of racketeering activity using the same enterprise. So I want to go back in time and I want you to describe what the lead up to this statute was like. What was organized crime like prior to 1970? Was it all just, you know, we've seen The Godfather. Was it, was, is this what we're talking about? Yeah, kind of. So the phrase organized crime can be used in in two different ways. Sometimes when people use the phrase organized crime, they mean any crime that's carried out in an organized way through some sort of system that more than one person is involved in. But sometimes when we talk about organized crime, we have something particular in mind, the mafia. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. And the mafia was a bigger deal through the first half of the 20th century than it is today. And RICO is part of the reason why it's no longer such a big deal. In 1970, Congress passed a huge anti-crime bill that did all kinds of things. But one of the things it did was create this new offense of RICO. And the motivation for the statute was concern about the mafia infiltrating and taking over legitimate businesses. And that was the heart of what Congress was trying to get at. But everybody recognized, even back then, that you can't have a statute that's only aimed at Italian-American criminals. Mm. So the statute cast uh, a wider net. From my understanding, the whole kind of point of this is to get, like, the big people at the top, the people who aren't getting their hands dirty. 
I mean, Rico is like a lot of statutes aimed at patterns or combinations of crime in that the idea often is that you'll be able to get to the people at the top in part by going after people who are further down. RICO has sometimes been used to sweep in people who operate at a much lower level in criminal enterprises, but it has also been used to go after people towards the top. Ironically, um, some of the most famous examples of that are anti-mafia prosecutions that Rudy Giuliani led when he was the U.S. attorney in Manhattan back in the 1980s. Oh, wow. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So Rudy Giuliani first gained national fame as a crusading federal prosecutor in New York City. And among his most famous prosecutions were RICO cases against mafia figures, including very high-level mafia figures. The biggest of these cases was called the Mafia Commission Trial, which was a very significant case in the mid-1980s against 11 mafia leaders, including the heads of New York City's five families. In this indictment alone, uh, we mentioned uh, five specific murders. Uh, In other indictments, uh, in other cases, uh, you've got 20, 30 murders uh, mentioned in another indictment, alleged in another indictment. uh, Eight of those defendants were tried and convicted under RICO, and most of them were sentenced to 100 years in prison. In that case, um, and others like it, played a significant role in reducing the influence of the mafia. Can you explain how trying a RICO case differs from trying a regular criminal case? What is that like? Yeah, it's really different in two ways. First of all, RICO introduces a a bunch of new legal issues. If you and I are charged with fraud, the prosecutors have to prove that we've committed fraud. But if we're charged with committing fraud and with RICO, then the prosecutors have to charge not just that we've committed fraud, but that we did it in a way that constitutes a pattern Mm. and that we did it through the activities of an enterprise. So there are additional legal issues that get added on when RICO's brought into play. The biggest difference, though, is that RICO is often charged precisely because it allows prosecutors to sweep in lots of different events and lots of different defendants who ordinarily couldn't be combined in the same case or at the same trial. And that means that you wind up with enormous cases with many, many defendants. I mentioned that the the Mafia Commission case involved eight defendants. The RICO case against Donald Trump in Georgia involves 19 defendants. And when you have a case involving 19 defendants and the wide range of crimes that they've been charged with committing, it creates all kinds of complications. You have to figure out Can they all be tried together, or is that unfair to one or more of the defendants? And if they are tried together, how do you run a trial with with 19 separate defendants? Where do they all sit? Where do their attorneys sit? Who gets to question the witnesses first? How do you handle objections from 19 different lawyers for 19 different parties in the same case? It can be very unwieldy. Yeah, I never, I, I have to admit, I did not stop and think about the logistical hurdles of a case this large. 
They're enormous. If you think about trials you've seen, either real trials or trials in movies or TV, you have two tables in front of the judge. The prosecutors are at one table. The defense is at the other table. One side calls a witness. The other side gets to cross-examine them. Sometimes there are objections, and the two lawyers will go to sidebar with the judge and argue outside of the jury's hearing. If you have 19 defendants and lawyers for 19 defendants, just orchestrating that, figuring out physically where everybody sits, figuring out what order you're going to allow people to talk in, who gets to question which witnesses when, it's very complicated. Okay, so that's RICO 101. Next up, what's going to happen when the Donald goes down to Georgia? Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, so we're back. And David, we just learned about the federal RICO statute, but now I want to talk about how state statutes can differ from federal ones. You mentioned before that Georgia has a longer list of what can qualify under a RICO charge. Why is that significant? It's significant because it means that lots of specific Georgia crimes can be part of this indictment. So the predicate acts that are charged in this case include offenses that seem 
narrowly tailored precisely for circumstances like the ones that are alleged to have occurred here. So Georgia, for example, makes it a crime to try to get an elected official to violate his oath. So that's a very close fit for what it's alleged Donald Trump did when he called the Secretary of State in Georgia to swing Georgia from Joe Biden's column into Donald Trump's. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. That activity is also charged in the special counsel's indictment against uh, Trump in Washington, D.C., but it's charged in connection with a much vaguer, more general allegation that Trump was trying to defraud the United States or conspiring to deprive people of their voting rights. Similarly, the fake electors scheme in Georgia is part of the federal indictment in Washington, D.C. It's alleged by the special counsel that this was part of an effort to defraud the United States, which is a very general allegation. Georgia makes it a crime to impersonate a state officer or to commit forgery. And both of those are also predicate crimes Mm. for RICO in Georgia. So the Georgia RICO indictment against Trump and his 18 co-defendants also lists as part of the pattern of racketeering activity the forgery of the document identifying the fake electors as the real electors and the fact that the electors tried to pass themselves off as the lawfully uh, selected electors from Georgia. Similarly, it is a predicate crime for uh, under Georgia's RICO statute to access uh, computer records without authorization, which is what some of the defendants are charged with having done with regard to computerized voting records in Georgia. It, it, it's so fascinating because, I mean, the crimes are so specific. And the fact, I, I don't know, it just, it, it's so, it just, I'm like, how, how there are such specific crimes that I would never think of. Like, you know, I mean, forgery, yes, but I would never think of making that a predicate crime, but it happens to be, and uh, Wow. Yeah, it's another difference between the Georgia case and the federal case. And it's something that, if there are convictions in this case, might later wind up being important on on appeal. There's been lots of litigation in in the federal courts about how widely federal fraud statutes should reach. And um, I think if Trump is convicted in the Washington, D.C. case, we can anticipate litigation on appeal about whether the statutes that the special counsel has used in that case really are designed to reach and should reach the conduct that Trump is charged with having carried out. Whereas in the Georgia case, the fit of the statutes for the conduct that's charged is much tighter and much more natural. It feels very bespoke almost. I'm yep. like, how, how, yeah, what I are like the that odds? Word. Yeah. Georgia has a statute that makes it a crime to try to convince a public official to violate his oath. And one imagines that when that statute was passed, this is exactly the kind of conduct that the legislators had in mind. So we know that Trump and 18 named co-defendants have been indicted, and there are also 30 unindicted co-conspirators. 
What's up with that? How do they factor into this? And why aren't they indicted? That just, that stuck out to me as something that made me go, huh. We don't know why they're not indicted. It could be that the prosecutors are not convinced that they have enough evidence to convict those people beyond a reasonable doubt. It could be that the prosecutors are engaged in plea negotiations with some of those people to see if they want to work out a a pre-indictment deal. So Fannie Willis is the district attorney who's brought these charges, and she's planning to charge all 19 defendants together. Can you talk about the advantage of trying everyone together? Like, what does what does that do? From a prosecutor's perspective, it allows the prosecutor to tell a more complete panoramic story, and it prevents what prosecutors call the empty chair defense. It prevents defendants from saying, oh, the person who's really responsible for this criminal activity is somebody who's not even in the courtroom. Prosecutors are, are worried that if they try one defendant um, and then another defendant in the, uh, the first trial, defendant one will say, oh, this is really all defendant two's responsibility and he's not here. And then in the second trial, defendant two will say, well, it was really all defendant one and she's not here. And if you try everybody together, then they're all pointing fingers at each other which prosecutors like because they feel that they can then pursue a strategy of divide and conquer. And what about the disadvantages? It's logistically far more complicated to try a whole bunch of people together. But it also makes it um, more difficult to get to trial in the first place because when you have multiple defendants, they um, can raise different legal issues And among the issues they can raise is whether it's fair for them to be tried together or whether they need to have separate trials. So it can take a long time to work through all those motions and get to the point where you can have a trial. Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, um, has significant experience with Georgia's RICO law. She's indicted cases with that statute before, and she succeeded in prosecutions with that statute before. But the cases in which she's used the statute, I think, show both the advantages and the disadvantages. So before she was district attorney, when she was just a line prosecutor, Fannie Willis played a large role in a prosecution under Georgia's RICO law of 35 educators in the Atlanta area who were charged with cheating on standardized tests. That case was successful. Uh, There were, most of the defendants pled guilty, 12 of them went to trial, 11 of them were convicted, but that took a long time. The case took um, a year and a half from indictment until the point when trial began, and then the trial itself stretched on for six months. As district attorney, Willis uh, has also used Georgia's RICO statute to go after the rapper Jeffrey Williams uh, and his record label YSL, which Willis's office has charged, uh, has been operating as a criminal gang. 28 defendants were charged under Georgia's RICO statute in that case. Several of them have entered into plea deals, but there are eight defendants who are still scheduled to be tried. The the trial 
in, in that case actually started this past January, but uh, we still haven't finished jury selection in that case. When you introduce this many defendants and this many legal issues, it can complicate things both before trial and during trial. Yeah, I I have to admit that this Donald Trump case isn't the first time I've seen George's Rico laws in the news. I've been following the YSL case, and I can tell you I did not have Young Thug and Donald Trump facing similar charges on my 2023 bingo card. What does Willis's affinity for Rico charges tell us? I think she's comfortable with the statute, and she's comfortable with big cases involving lots of defendants. She doesn't seem afraid of these cases, and she seems very comfortable with trying to address the complexities in a RICO case and using the law to allow her to present a panoramic picture in court, and also using the law to sweep in lots of people with the hope that some of them will decide to plead guilty and cooperate with the government. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought up the YSL case and how long it's taken. So Trump is booked and busy this next year between all the court cases and his presidential campaign. The Georgia DA wants to start that trial in March and the DOJ wants its trial in January. Trump's lawyers have said that to go through all the terabytes of documents that they need to for the federal case, that they're going to need a 2026 start date. And you know... That sounds like a long time, but when you just think of the sheer volume of, you know, documents and discovery, it does seem reasonable. I mean, what should we expect as far as timelines go? The timeline is is the whole battle here. We're used to thinking of the battle in a criminal case being what happens at trial. But in these cases, the real battle is whether there's going to be a trial at all. Sometimes criminal defendants will say, I look forward to vindicating myself in court. That's not anything you ever hear from Donald Trump, because from his perspective, any criminal trial in which he's a defendant is a disaster. Set aside for a moment the possibility that he'll be convicted and sentenced to prison, which I think is a real possibility in all these cases, the mere fact of a trial is a disaster for him. It's a disaster because it takes him off the campaign trail, and it's a disaster because it's completely inconsistent with his whole method of operating. His strategy is to act the big man, to be the tough guy, the guy who's in charge. And he likes to talk in settings where nobody contradicts him, nobody tells him what he's supposed to talk about, nobody challenges him. That's not what's going to happen in a trial. In a trial, the discussion is run by the judge who applies rules of evidence and rules of relevance. The discussion proceeds at trial through proof that has to be introduced in court. And Trump, for the most part, will be sitting in court listening to other people talk about him. So this is as far as can be imagined from the setting that he likes to be in, which is when he's on some stage in front of an adoring crowd. So his whole strategy in the weeks and months to come will be to stay out of court, not to have a trial. And the question is, 
how successful will he be in that endeavor? I think some of these cases are likely to be able to move faster than others. The Washington, D.C. prosecution of Trump may be the one that is most likely to be tried soon because it's a stripped-down case. It has only one defendant. It's narrowly focused on Donald Trump. And it's true that Trump's lawyers have suggested that the volume of documents in this case means that the trial shouldn't be scheduled until 2026. But I don't think that the judge is going to buy that. And I think Trump's lawyers know that the judge isn't going to buy that. One more quick break, and we'll jump into some of the unknowns of this RICO case and the complicated legal landscape Trump is facing. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, David, so there are a lot of what-ifs right now, and that's because this is a gigantic case with some very serious and some very obvious implications. But before we get into what that guilty verdict could mean, I want to talk about logistics. Are we going to see this trial happen during the primary, or are things going to get shuffled around? I will be 
surprised if this case can go to trial as quickly as the DA says that she wants it to go to trial. She said that she would like to see a trial date within six months. But I think with 19 defendants, that is a real stretch. In the Atlanta educators case that Fannie Wills tried under Georgia's RICO statute, it took a year and a half to get to trial after indictment. The YSL case is still in jury selection, which started in January. And neither of those cases have some of the additional complexities that this case has. Neither of those cases, for example, are going to involve efforts to remove the case to federal court, which this case does involve. Mark Meadows, one of Trump's co-defendants in the Atlanta case, has already said that he wants his case moved to federal court. Other defendants, including Trump, may join in that request, and that's yet another layer of complication. And then, of course, we have the complication that the defendants in this case, including Trump, have legal complications elsewhere, particularly Trump, who's facing three other criminal indictments. And I am sure that part of Trump's lawyer strategies will be to try to use each of these cases against the other, to try to use the New York, Florida, and Washington case to slow down the Georgia case, and to try to use the Georgia, Florida, and New York case to slow down the Washington, D.C. case. So I think each of these cases involves its own challenges, but particularly with 19 defendants and the range of legal issues that the Georgia case raises, a trial starting six months from now strikes me as ambitious. I'm glad that you mentioned the Mark Meadows request, because to me, that request, the, the reason behind it seems very obvious, you know, if it's federal. And then, you know, uh, one of your co-defendants becomes president you probably, there's a good chance you'll get pardoned or, you know, you could be more hopeful towards that. But I kind of, I kind of want to talk out more of that, tease out more of that, not just the results, but what would happen to this case if it's moved from Georgia to a federal case? What would happen? So I don't think it's clear that it would mean that a conviction would be subject to presidential pardon. Mm. In fact, I think it probably would not be subject to presidential pardon, even if the even case— Even if it's a move to federal? Yeah, because um, if it's moved to the federal court, it's still a trial for state crimes. Mm. The only thing that changes is the courtroom and the procedural rules that attach to the trial. So if the case gets moved— to federal court, the federal rules of criminal procedure get applied, the federal rules of evidence get applied, and the jury is drawn from the area that is covered by the federal court, um, which would be larger Mm. than Fulton County. So one possible advantage for a defendant like Meadows in moving the case to federal court is that jury pool change, and you might get a more favorable jury pool. Another possible advantage is that his lawyers may feel that a federal court is a a friendlier venue for them because they are more familiar with federal procedures than the state prosecutors will be. I'm going to be interested to see whether Trump joins in this request. Because I think it has advantages and disadvantages for Trump. For Trump, as for Meadows, it it may mean a a more favorable jury pool. 
But it may also mean that once the case gets moved, it could move along faster mm. rather than slow, mm. more slowly because federal courts in general are more used to large, complicated cases. And it's not clear that Trump would be better off with this case in federal court. Nonetheless, if I had to bet, I would bet that his lawyers will join in the request. The reason is that it's yet another thing that could slow things down, at least in the in the near term. Every additional legal issue, I think, is good from Trump's perspective because it, it creates more things that have to be argued about. And what Trump wants most, what his side wants most, are things that can we have to argue about in court where Trump doesn't have to be sitting in court as a defendant. So legal issues are, are perfect in this regard because he, he doesn't have to be in the courtroom. He can let the lawyers duke it out. I think the jury pool thing is so interesting um, because, you know, Fulton County is bright blue. Like, it, it's Atlanta. And then, you know, I was listening to our colleagues over at Today Explain. They did a wonderful episode when the news initially broke. And Georgia kind of in general has Trump fatigue. They're a little bit over it. Even even the Republicans, when you look at his relationship with the governor, like they, they are ready to uh, move on. Yeah. It's hard to know how that would play out in a criminal case, but it, it might well mean that the larger jury pool wouldn't wind up helping Trump or any of the other defendants because there are lots of Republicans in Georgia who seem fed up and done with the efforts to overturn their election results and meddle in their state governance. So with with the possibility of moving this from, you know, Fulton County to federal court mean that the mandatory prison time changes? Like, what does that mean as far as sentencing? Do we know? It doesn't change anything in terms of sentencing because it would mean that the procedural rules, the rules that about how the court operates would be the federal rules and not the state rules. But the substantive law that gets applied, the, the criminal prohibitions, the sentencing provisions, those would all be Georgia law, which I know sounds odd. You would think, well, if it's all Georgia law, why would you be moving it to federal court? And it might not move to federal court precisely because generally cases involving state crimes are handled in state courts. What complicates things here is that there's a statute, a federal statute that says criminal defendants have a right to move their trial from state court to federal court if they have a plausible defense that centers around their federal responsibilities. Mm. And that's what, that's what Meadows says. Meadows says, look, my defense, and he says it's a good one, is that I was just pursuing my duties and doing my job as the president's chief of staff. And that's my defense. And because it's a, my defense and because it's at least a plausible defense, the statute says we can move this trial to federal court because there's a big federal issue involved that has to do with the supremacy of federal law to state law. And that's what the federal district court is going to have to decide, whether there really is a plausible defense here that arises from 
the federal position that Meadows had at the time. And if Trump joins in the request, the issue will be the same with regard to Trump. Would the federal court, would it still be in Georgia or would it be like somewhere else? It would probably be in Georgia. I mean, it you could conceivably move the trial out of the state, but that's generally not done. And I doubt it would be done here. So the trial would be held in Georgia. It would be in a federal court, though, in Georgia and not in a state court. So we've already established that this is one of two RICO cases out of Georgia that I have had my eye on. The other is the YSL case. And we've seen in that case people take plea deals. Are we going to see the same likely in this other case, like, are people going to start singing like birdies? Like, what what are we about to see take place? I think you will see some plea deals. With 19 defendants, the odds that all of them will decide to go to trial is low. And that hasn't happened in the other cases where Willis has charged lots of defendants. It's just the law of numbers that when you have this many people involved, it's unlikely that they will all decide that they want to throw in their lot with the lead defendant in the case. Particularly when uh, even if Trump wins the election, he won't be in a position to pardon any of them. Mm. Before I let you go, I'm really curious about your thoughts on this case in the grand scheme of things. Like, What is this telling us about our judicial system and our politics and, you know, the the state of our democracy right now? Yeah, well, the jury is still out, you could say, Um, (laughs) because I think Donald Trump is putting American democracy to a test in all kinds of ways. Mm. One of the ways he's putting it to the test is by pressing to see whether our legal system can deal with the kinds of blatant violations of the rule of law that Donald Trump has been engaging in for years. And we've never had a president who tried to throw out the results of the election in which he was voted out of office by gaming the Electoral College, by putting together fake groups of electors by pressuring the vice president to violate his oath and pressuring a state secretary of state to violate his oath. So it's not clear whether our legal system and our democracy are up to these challenges. I think the indictments are good news in the sense that they suggest that our system is at least healthy enough to get these charges filed and to start moving them towards trial. But it remains to be seen whether the system will be strong enough to actually get them to trial. I think they will be, but we'll have to see. David Skolansky, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thank you, JQ. It was a lot of fun. Before we go, I wanted to circle back to that conversation we had earlier with Andrew. Because none of this is happening in a vacuum. I asked him what this could mean for the 2024 presidential race. There's nothing stopping Trump from being a presidential candidate. He's going to be on the ballot for the Republican nomination. And if voters pick him, he'll get that nomination. And then he'll be 
on the ballot in the fall of 2024, uh, likely running against Joe Biden. And, you know, there's a question of how long these trials will take. Some of them have dates that have been set up. We don't know if those dates will move, but it is possible he could be found guilty or even sentenced to prison before the 2024 election. But even if that happens, you know, he there's no automatic, like, magical legal trick that just knocks him out of contention for the presidency. He'll still be on the ballot, and it will still be up to the voters. And, I mean, it's, it's hard to game out exactly how it would play out because it's a pretty unprecedented situation. But I think most people's assumption at this point is that, you know, if he wins the election, he's going to be the next president. The 19 co-defendants have until noon on Friday, August 25th, to surrender themselves to the Rice Street Jail in Fulton County. Donald Trump is expected to turn himself in for booking on Thursday. To stay on top of this story and the rest of the news, head to Vox.com. That's all for us today. Thank you to Andrew Prokop and David Skolansky for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Erica Wong engineered this episode. Caitlin Pinsey-Moog fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall, and I'm your host, John Glenn Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs> 